and welcome to the History of the Land of Israel podcast. I am Shail bin Ephraim, and I welcome you to the one podcast with the guts to survey the most provocative historical narrative in the world. Episode 20, 10 Plagues of Egypt. It's been a while since we visited those powerful neighbors of Canaan, the Egyptians. While the Canaanite culture and religion had become dominant in the land, the Middle Kingdom had ruled a united and powerful empire, but one which did not take much direct interest in the land of Israel. Significant exception was, of course, close ties of the pharaohs to Byblos, primarily for commercial reasons. However, changes in Egypt were coming, and they would have a profound effect on the Canaanites. The last powerful dynasty of the Middle Kingdom was the 12th, it ended when Queen Subekneferu died in 1802 BCE, leaving no heirs. The subsequent dynasty was the not very imaginatively titled 13th dynasty. But honestly, that's a total misnomer. There was a bunch of weak and short-lived kings, often with no relation to one another. But Egyptologists lumped them together as a dynasty because that's what they do. Since it wasn't really one, but rather a sad assortment of powerless kings, the 13th could not keep Egypt united. While they sat and ruled in Memphis, they lost control over the Nile Delta, which was the source of much of Egypt's wealth and power. The family that took over that part of the country is called, wait for it, the 14th Dynasty. The Middle Kingdom ended, bringing about a series of short-lived kings. Egypt was weak for a long time. It didn't know much material hardship then, but the centralized power was seriously lacking. You may remember that in a previous episode, we discussed the first intermediate period in Egypt. That lasted from 2181 to 2055 BCE, and it had seen the end of the Old Kingdom and the rise of the Middle One. Now that the Great Middle Kingdom was at an end, this period was called, and you'll get no points for guessing, the Second Intermediate Period, and it lasted from 1782 to 1570 BCE. Now, if that wasn't enough, Egypt was soon hit by a famine. That sounds pretty bad, right? But it gets worse. A volcanic eruption took place on the island of Santorini in Greece. Which, by the way, may be the most beautiful place on Earth. Just Google it. And that turned the French, the fresh water in the country acidic. Then a century later, the country was hit by a terrible storm. Described in the dramatically titled Tempest Steel. Man, all this misfortune made me wonder if the ten plagues recorded in the book of Exodus refer to this period. Now, I'm sure you remember the story, but in case you don't, here's a refresher. The Israelites were in Egypt as slaves. Moses had asked the Pharaoh to let his people go, but he very rudely said no. So to convince the Egyptian king, God sent ten horrible plagues on the country. That worked, but then the Pharaoh had a change of heart. Sadly for him, it was too late. The Israelites had escaped. Now, if that story occurred, or was at least based enough on historical reality, then that would have been a terrible time for the people of Egypt. I mean, we're talking about 10 horrifying plagues. And that could be related to the Second Intermediate Period and the ensuing chaos. 
And apparently, I'm not the only one who's wondered about this connection. I did some research to see if this series of unfortunate events may have inspired the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And some research has been done on what inspired it. It's all pretty speculative, but it's highly entertaining nonetheless. So let's take a look. So one theory pertains to that volcano eruption in Santorini. In 2005, microbiologist Ciro Trevisanato wrote a book titled The Plagues of Egypt, Archaeology, History, and Science. Look at the Bible. Now, that's not the best title I've ever heard, but it's a fun read. He believes the volcano eruption can explain every single plague. So hang on to your hats, because here we go. Plague 1, turning water into blood. He says the Nile turned red because of the toxic acids in the volcanic ash. They included the mineral cinnabar, which in large enough quantities can turn a river red. Frogs. The acidity in the water would have been very uncomfortable for the poor little frogs, so they would have jumped out to try to survive. That would have created a veritable plague of frogs. Lice. Insects would have thrived by feeding on the corpses of those who died due to the volcanic ash, leading to a plague of lice. Hail of fire. The ash would have caused acid rain, which would then have brought forth boils on the bodies of people in the area, which explains the boils. Pestilence of livestock. That would have contaminated the grass and poisoned the animals eating it. Locusts. The humidity caused by the acid rain would have been ideal for locusts, explaining their massive arrival in Egypt at that time. Three days of darkness. Of course, the ash would have clouded the sky significantly and darkened the land. Finally, the worst of all, death of the firstborn sons. People would have been desperate to appease their gods due to all these cataclysmic occurrences. Therefore, according to this book, they sacrificed their eldest sons to the gods to placate their vengeful appetite. Now, aside from the question of whether it was likely that all these events were to happen at the same time, we also have some severe periodization problems. For example, the Greek historian Herodotus places the events of the Egyptian exodus in around 1570 to 1550 BCE, after the Second Intermediate Period, but not long after. Um, so we're talking about events that probably happened over 100 years or so. But wait, there's more to talk about regarding scientific explanations of the Ten Plagues. The mummy of the pharaoh Thutmose II, or as I like to call him, Thutmose the Utmost, was found in 1886 by French Egyptologist Gaston Maspero, who ceremoniously unwrapped him. He explained that the mummy was, quote, scabrous in patches and covered with scars, end quote. Indeed, you could find lesions covering his back, waist, arms, and legs. A plethora of disgusting scabs, scars, and boils were present everywhere. Yep, boils, just like in the plagues. They also found the corpse of the royal nanny, and this unfortunate nanny suffered from a similar condition. Now, most likely, all these are unpleasant things that had been known to occur in Egypt, rather than anything that happened in rapid succession. Um, and there's explanations for some of these events that have nothing to do with volcanoes. The Nile does turn red on occasion. 
Now, it's usually blue or muddy, but under certain weather conditions, algae can grow, turning the water red. The plants Heimatacus pluvialis and Eugelina sanguinea have the chemical compound astaxanthin. If there are enough cells of that in the Nile, that river can turn red. The popular name for this phenomenon is burgundy blood. Now, if it sounds like I don't know what I'm talking about, you're right. But that's at least what I got from reading and researching into it. Meanwhile, the fifth plague has some similarities to a well-known veterinary disease. If you remember, that's the one that killed off Egyptian livestock. And it's similar to rinderpest. That's a disease that causes high fever, diarrhea, and ulcers in the mouth and nose. It spreads quickly and can be very deadly, so I don't recommend it. But if you're concerned about the future of your livestock, don't be. That disease was already eliminated in 2001. So thank you, science. Whether the 10 plagues are a historical phenomenon or symbolic is unknown. Possibly a combination. But I love the theological explanation of the plagues, as explained by Fred Blumenthal in the Jewish Bible Quarterly. Here's what he says, quote, The God of the Hebrews, in whose name Moses acted, later visited ten plagues upon the Egyptians, which ultimately led to the release of the slaves. Four of these plagues were events in which the animals, supposedly guardians of the Egyptian population, turned into extremely troublesome or dangerous attackers, frogs, lice, wild beasts, and locusts. Three of them subjected the godlike animals to bouts of sickness, like pestilence and boils, or devastation through hail, which in the latter case required human protection. This explains the reports specifying that both men and animals were attacked, as you can see in Exodus 9. Two of the plagues reduced Egyptian gods to a state of powerlessness, in which they could not bestow their normal divine favors. Like when the Nile turned into blood, and darkness extinguished Ra's light. The last plague threatened and slew Egypt's firstborn man and beast. This would include Pharaoh himself, because it was usually the firstborn who inherited the throne, and who, as noted above, was thought to be the child of Egypt's foremost deity. The ten plagues were therefore not merely a succession of events that made life unbearable for the Egyptian population. They were also a demonstration of the Hebrew god's power and supremacy over the local deities. The god of the slaves, who was not even supposed to exist, could reduce the existing gods to powerless entities. The tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, was actually a personal threat to the king himself. No wonder he took steps to quickly expel the former slaves from his country. It became a matter of self-preservation following the plague of darkness, which showed that even the sun god Ra, father of Pharaoh, was unable to defend his position in a battle with the god of the Hebrews. A few days later, he was able to reduce the existing gods to powerless entities. So the motivation for the story of the plagues of Egypt is familiar. It goes to show the superiority of the Israelite god over others. In this case, the Egyptian ones. But that doesn't mean the story is fictional. 
After all, if it was based on events that Canaanites and Israelites were familiar with, it would make the narrative all the more powerful. And we'll come back to that at the end of this episode. Now, it's hard to say how solid the origin of the Ten Plague story is. But here is why I believe it has at least some foundation in Egyptian reality. Let's say there was a series of natural disasters in Egypt during the Second Intermediate Period. Maybe enough to account for at least some of the ten plagues of Egypt. We know there were Canaanites in Egypt at that time to witness them. Indeed, Canaanites were starting to become dominant in the region at this time. They may have brought the story of the ten plagues to the land of Israel, having experienced these disasters or seen them for themselves. It is an essential story in the region's development and is often sadly neglected. But we're going to fix that in this episode because that's what this podcast does. Now, Canaan and Egypt were, of course, neighbors, separated by the Sinai Desert. Although the story of Exodus tells us that the Israelites wandered for 40 years to get from Egypt back home, according to Google Maps, the walk would have taken about 100 hours. So people made the journey all the time. As you can remember from previous episodes, the Song of Sinew discussed the wonders of Canaan from an Egyptian perspective, and many Canaanites were drawn to the more advanced and better cultivated Nile Delta. As the migrants became more culturally and politically significant, the Egyptians coined the name Hyksos for them. It's derived from the Egyptian phrase that means rulers of foreign lands. During the late Middle Kingdom, there was a large amount of Canaanite settlement on the eastern bank of the Nile. We know that because of all the metalwork and pottery of that type that turned up there. Another great clue is that we have burials of donkeys, which is apparently a well-known Canaanite homework. If you had a bunch of these cute pack animals buried next to you, it meant you were a person of great stature. You can find donkey graves like this all over the Middle East, from Mesopotamia to Israel and the eastern Nile. But the Egyptians weren't into that. Personally, that's too bad. Donkeys just don't get enough respect nowadays. Humans were also buried in a different manner between the two cultures. You see, the immigrants usually interred their dead in the fetal position on their sides, which coincidentally is how I sleep. If you've ever seen a mummy, they're always lying on their backs, and that's the Egyptian style. And I can't fall asleep that way, so I guess I'm a Canaanite. And their ideas of where to bury the dead were also wildly different. Egyptians built cemeteries outside their towns for the ordinary dead, and had elaborate tombs or even pyramids for their leaders. But the Canaanites would inter their loved ones beneath their homes. It's a tradition befitting their evident stress on familial ties and rule by clan. All this paints a pretty clear picture the Canaanites were deeply tied to their traditional culture. They had no intention of abandoning it or adopting Egyptian ways. This is quite impressive when you compare this to Nubian invaders and settlers, who often assumed the dominant local culture hook, line, and sinker. And on a personal level, it makes me think, is this where Jews got their tenacity? Now, most of what we know about these Canaanite settlers comes from the site of Tel El Daba. That place rose from a small settlement into a fortified town, and then into a capital for a line of kings 
Yes, I said kings. These settlers were destined to take over North Egypt and possibly the entire country at one point. So how did this influential wave of migration start? People from all over Canaan, modern Israel, Syria, Lebanon, flowed into the country over the centuries, probably starting well before 2000 BCE. Their culture differed from the locals, as we saw, and they often kept to themselves, building their own suburbs around existing cities or founding new ones. The first historical recounting of their arrival, really the only one, is found in the work of Manetho. This historian lived in Egypt during the Hellenic period. So we're talking about a good 1,200 years after the fact. So it's not the best source, but it gets worse. His works were not preserved. Instead, we know them through citations from the Jewish historian Josephus Flavius, who lived in the Roman era. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself for the narrative, but he's not exactly known as the most reliable historical source. To make matters even worse, Manetho is, justifiably, considered to be one of the forefathers of anti-Semitism. Yep, he totally hated Jews before it was cool. And Manetho clearly was displeased with the Tanakh narrative, which made the Egyptians look like the bad guys and a bunch of losers. So his stories strike back by portraying the Jews as lepers thrown out of Egypt for their impurity. He said they conquered Egypt in a, quote, barbarous manner, setting the cities and villages on fire, roasting those sacred animals, and forcing the priests and prophets to be the executioners and murderers of the sacred animals. So basically, every mention of the Jews is negative there. And this also highlights tension between the Israelites and the Egyptians that may have existed um, at the time, which is that while for the Egyptians, a lot of these animals were sacred, for the Israelites, they were fodder for sacrifice to their god. So even though it's a very problematic source, that's really all we have in, term of, in terms of written histories. So in his book, The Aegyptiaca, or The History of Egypt in Greek, Here's what he had to say. Now, it's quoted in Josephus, as we already noted. And Josephus has a preface to this quote. And I will quote the preface before I quote the quote. I hope you were following me on that. Quote, I shall quote his own words, just as if I had brought forward the man himself as a witness, end quote. Now, I'm not sure if we should trust this quote more or less because he goes through these pains to say he didn't change the quote. In my opinion, I would trust it even less because, as you know the saying, the lady doth protest too much. But anyway, here is the quote. Unexpectedly, from the regions of the East, invaders of obscure race marched in confidence of victory against our land. By main force, they easily seized it without striking a blow, and having overpowered the rulers of the land, they then burned our cities ruthlessly, razed to the ground the temples of the gods, and treated all the natives with cruel hostility, massacring some and leading into slavery the wives and children of others. Finally, they appointed as king one of their number, whose name was Salitis. He had his seat in Memphis, levying tribute from Upper and Lower Egypt, and always leaving garrisons behind in the most advantageous positions. Above all, he fortified the district to the east, foreseeing that the Assyrians, as they grew stronger, 
would one day covet and attack his kingdom. In the Saite, he founded a city that was favorably situated on the east of the Bubastite branch of the Nile and called Awaris after an ancient religious tradition. This place he rebuilt and fortified with massive walls, planting there a garrison of as many as 240,000 heavily armed men to guard his frontier. Here he would come in summertime, partly to serve out rations and pay his troops, partly to train them carefully in maneuvers and so strike terror into foreign tribes. After reigning for 19 years, Salidus died, and a second king, named Banan, succeeded and reigned for 44 years. Next to him came Apachnan, who ruled for 36 years and 7 months, and then Apophis for 61, and Ayanas for 50 years and 1 month. And finally, Asis for 49 years and 2 months. These six kings, their first rulers, were ever more and more eager to destroy the Egyptian stock. Their race as a whole were called the Hyksos, that is, King Shepherds, or Hyk in the sacred language means king, and Sos in common speech is shepherd or shepherds, hence the compound word Hyksos. Some say that they were Arabs, end quote. Josephus then goes on to vaguely connect the Hyksos with the Jews. He writes, Manetho says that this race of so-called shepherds is in the sacred books of Egypt described as captives, and his statement is correct. With our remotest ancestors, it was a hereditary custom to feed sheep as they lived nomadic lives. They were called shepherds. But on the other hand, in the Egyptian records, they were not unreasonably styled captives since our ancestor Joseph told the king of Egypt that he was a captive, and later, with the king's consent, summoned his brethren to Egypt, end quote. Josephus also claims that when the Hyskos were expelled from Egypt, they went on to establish Jerusalem, which is, of course, not historically true. So to him, they were clearly either Jews or the forerunners of the Israelites, which makes sense. He was writing a history of the Jews, and he tried to fit everything into this narrative. Josephus does not address the fact that he just brought up a quote saying the Hyskos were Arabs and is now claiming they were Jews, but that is Josephus for you. One unreliable historian quoting another unreliable historian. Uh, nothing much has changed from modern academia. Both Manetho and Josephus were wrong on several counts. First, the gods they worshipped and the remains the Hyskos left behind show no doubt. They weren't Arabs. The Nazis thought they were something else. Shock, shock. They said that they were Aryans. But scholars today say the Temple of Ugaris is highly similar to the ones found in Byblos and Ugarit. Therefore, archaeologist Manfred Biatak says their spiritual home is in northernmost Syria and northern Mesopotamia. So, in the cities that we've covered quite a bit in this podcast. Um, so, Canaanites. They also didn't invade, but instead emigrated. The Assyrians also weren't a threat back then. The Hyskos also didn't rule from Memphis. Manetho also gets the names wrong. Hyskos doesn't mean king shepherds. It means rulers of foreign lands. Recent research has shown some other interesting points. For example, we know there was a steady increase in the Levantine population in the area for at least 150 years before the Hyskos took power. 
And here's another indication we aren't talking about a sudden invasion. Usually, when a swarm of military is overcoming a country, men come first and subdue the local women. That's certainly what we find with the Mongols. But instead, in the early years of Canaanite settlement, we see the opposite. No less than 77% of the females in the area appear to have been Canaanite, or at least not Egyptian. Therefore, Biatak writes, quote, The migration should be understood within a repetitive pattern of the attraction of Egypt for Western Asiatic population groups that came in search of a living in the country, especially the Delta, since prehistoric times, end quote. Now, you might be wondering how the Egyptians received these migrants. We know that the pharaohs believed their people were far superior to all foreigners. They looked at other civilizations as inferior curiosities. But perhaps because of this supreme self-confidence, they proved surprisingly tolerant of foreigners settling in their country. There are few signs of strife between the communities, at least at first. The Canaanites coming in were tight-knit in the traditional Levantine way. Each village had a large house in the center. Then there were smaller homes around it. Therefore, most were probably related to that large family by blood, marriage, or at least treaty. Larger Canaanite settlements often had two or three families, and in those cases, they may have competed for power. And perhaps that's why the Egyptians generally accepted them. These people kept to themselves and did their own thing. The Egyptians became increasingly gracious hosts. The Canaanites were soon accepted into royal administration. Indeed, that is how the settlement of Tel al-Daba developed into a center. The town, known to the ancient Egyptians as Avaris, became the administrative heart of the pharaoh's rule over the Canaanites in the region. The monarchy in Memphis hired people from the local culture to govern for them and tax these migrants. But their main job was to keep open trade routes with Canaan, which also led to Mesopotamia and Anatolia. To this, they were very well suited culturally. They also greatly expanded trade with Cyprus, a connection that would outlive the Hyskos and serve Egypt in the future. Some historians credit them with introducing the horse and chariot into Egypt as well. That would be a significant contribution if accurate, because they were used extensively in later Egyptian periods. Evidence for that is that the first horses in the regions are from this period and are found in this area. But there's no clear evidence the high schools used chariots, and if they did, they didn't use them extensively. Despite being well accepted by the locals, the Hyskos eventually rebelled against them. That raises some questions. Why did they go out of their way to rebel against the authorities if they were treated so well? Here's the most popular explanation. Around 1700 BCE, the Nile Delta region was hit by severe famine and also a plague. I'm sure that has you thinking about the ten plagues again. We know this from mass graves of people buried in haste, without the usual care. Both Canaanites and Egyptians normally interred their deceased, albeit in different ways, as we saw. But instead, here, both cultures buried their dead by laying them one on top of the other, haphazardly in various gruesome poses of extreme suffering. We can learn from this this must have been an utterly dire period. And this had important political ramifications. You have to remember how authority worked in the ancient world. 
The leaders were gods or close to them. The people submitted to their authority, usually willingly. But in exchange, they expected to enjoy the benevolence of the gods. What's the point of surrendering to demigods if you don't enjoy the fruits of it? When that didn't happen, like when plagues, floods, or the likes occurred, the monarchy lost its legitimacy. Try telling the people that you can't do anything about an epidemic when you claim divine favor. And that's why many Egyptologists link the Hyskos rebellion to the plague, especially since it occurred soon after. The capital was a hundred miles away in Memphis, and they had no answers. So the locals declared independence. They used the government's infrastructure, which had coalesced around avarice, and made that city the capital. I think the plague only provided the opportunity for the rebellion, but it didn't provide the motive. When you delve into the history of the high schools, the story really isn't so simple. We aren't exactly sure when the governors in avarice began to claim to be pharaohs, but... It was more of a gradual evolution than suddenly waking up one morning and screaming, I am Spartacus and rebelling. Likely the first one who did that was Yakbim Sakanre. He often signed his missives, the good god Sakanre, or the son of Ra Yakbim. A good indication that he was feeling pretty high and mighty. And he ruled from 1850 BCE to 1780 BCE or so. And that's a good century before the plague. And we also see that the Hyskos governors maintained close ties to their homeland. For example, the seals of Kare Kawasare, one of the um, governors there, originated in Jericho. And the close cultural ties and political ties to cities like Jericho and other areas in Canaan may indicate that they always had divided loyalties. It's hard to say. One thing we know for sure is that the rulers of Avarice had extensive experience running, running large areas with a degree of autonomy. Just as importantly, the local elites were used to working with them and had done so for generations. So they had connections with the Egyptians. They understood the lay of the land. It reminds me a bit of how the so-called barbarians took over Rome. We're kind of shaped by this um, Western narrative that they were wild hordes who just invaded and destroyed the civilized empire. But what really happened was a little bit different. The weakening imperial authorities put them in charge of self-administration areas when they couldn't run them themselves. Eventually, these so-called barbarians figured, what do we need the freaking Romans for? Well, I mean, aside from the sanitation, medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a freshwater system, and public health system. Yep, I just quoted Monty Python. So to me, the rebellion is more of a crime of opportunity than uh, one that occurred because of the circumstances. And I think that the idea that people will not rebel against treated badly is a very modern one. Local elites in ancient times were always looking to exert more authority and would often use any opportunity to do so. So they would fill a vacuum. It's not always a question of repression. And I'm not sure that repression always explains rebellions in the modern context either, but that's a different story. So once the Hyskos regime took charge, now they had the pesky problem of dealing with a famine. And you might think this would require some sort of sophisticated agricultural reform, but this was a different era. The solution, they believed, was to build a massive temple to appease the gods. Therefore, 
Avaris became the site of the largest temple built in the Second Intermediate Period. Who was that temple dedicated to? It was dedicated to four gods, two Egyptian and two Canaanite. The two Egyptian ones were Hathor, the Egyptian goddess of love, beauty, music, dancing, fertility, and pleasure, also the protector of women. She was a legit feminist icon. And Seth, the god of thunderstorms, eclipses, and earthquakes, and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. And two very familiar Canaanite faces, the Asherah and Baal. Now, Hathor and Seth were basically the Egyptian versions of Baal and Asherah. Asherah was a goddess of fertility, both for women and crops. Therefore, perfect for overcoming a famine. Meanwhile, Baal was the god of rain and storms. So he was obviously a good guy to have on your side in these situations. The temple became a center of worship and trade for the Nile Delta and southern Canaan, combining the two cultures and taxing areas in both. These gods all merged towards one goal, getting the level of the Nile up and putting food on the table. And it worked. The famine ended during the high Skos reign. No one knows precisely when, but definitely soon enough to help the new line gain legitimacy. Those mass graves disappear, and a certain amount of economic welfare returns to the region. Meanwhile, things in the south weren't so great. It was a time of weakness and disorder there. So the Egyptian kings did not have the power to subdue these upstarts. Instead, they appeared to have a mature view of the situation and reached an accommodation with these Canaanite kings. They negotiated a deal that allowed Hyskos to continue to exist as a separate kingdom as long as they continued to run the trade routes and allow the southern Egyptians to enjoy them. There's also evidence of diplomatic correspondence between the kingdoms and extensive cooperation at certain points. That's the nice thing about these ancient kingdoms. They didn't have fixed national borders. So when they lost territory, it sucked, but they bounced back. Compare that to today. If you're a country and you lose your lands in a war and you fail to get them back, it's considered a national insult you could never live down. You have to pass down the bitterness from generation to generation. This is a phenomenon political scientists call order fixity. And that's why the Ukraine insists on Crimea. Russia also insists on Crimea. Both India and Pakistan insist on Kashmir. Both Hungary and Romania insist on Transylvania. And I could go on. But another way of looking at it is that the southern kings just didn't have a choice. One of the characteristics of the intermediate periods is that pharaohs just didn't have much power. All the monarchs at this time were short-lived. They aren't mentioned much in the archaeological sources either. They may just have been figureheads for local elites or for the court viziers. Indeed, interestingly enough, we know far more about the viziers in this period than the pharaohs which is a telltale sign of their outsized power. Archaeologists have even found a statue of one particularly powerful vizier in Ugarit, a city that we know very well. Now, we started this episode with the Bible, and we'll finish with it. What else is new? The story of the Heiskos raises interesting possibilities regarding various parts of the Tanakh. John Bright, author of A History of Israel, noted that the admittance of Canaanite individuals into the court of the Pharaoh could easily be linked to the story of Joseph. Now, if you remember that story in Genesis, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, 
By and by, he ends up correctly interpreting the pharaoh's dream and is appointed vizier. Bright notes that this story may well have been inspired by the rise of Canaanites to high ranks within the Egyptian administration. We also get a clue about the origin of Joseph's coat of many colors. While the actual name used in the Bible is Kutonet Pasim, which means a coat of stripes. In any event, the tomb of Pnumhotep II shows Asiatics adorned in colorful garments. And these garments were likely reserved for foreign-born elites. So Joseph may well have been one of those. The parallels are many and striking. Indeed, some scholars believe that the story of Exodus is loosely based on what happened to the high schools. We will look much more closely at that possibility in future episodes. It's definitely worth examining. But one thing is for sure. We can see why, to the early Israelites, Egypt was part of their immediate universe. Their Canaanite forefathers had lived there. They traded with Egypt. At one point, they'd even ruled it. While they were there, they witnessed plagues. They were appointed advisors to the pharaohs. They were thrown out of the country. And they certainly had stories to tell about their experiences, the kind that are passed down in oral history, and maybe even were written down in sources that have since been destroyed or we haven't found yet. So my guess, and many scholars agree with me, is that one way or another, these stories found their way into the Tanakh. And that means the heritage of the Hyskos and the Canaanites is shared with the Israelites. So this is where the Jewish story begins. With that, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but only if you're going to give us five stars. Otherwise, send me an angry email at historylandisrael at gmail.com. That's historylandisrael at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and see you on the History of the Land of Israel podcast next time.